Our sermon this morning is from Lamentations chapter 3. Go ahead and turn to Lamentations chapter 3 in your Bibles. If you're looking for the book of Lamentations in your Bible, you can. it's a little small book. You can find it after the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah. It's going to follow Jeremiah immediately and before Ezekiel. So flip open to the middle. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, you're in the right uh, spot. We're in the middle of a series going through the book of Lamentations, which is all about uh, mourning and sadness. Um, oddly enough, we didn't choose this sermon series specifically in response to the coronavirus pandemic that we're experiencing. We've actually been planning uh, this sermon series, going through Lamentations for uh, really for over uh, a year. Uh, We weren't planning on preaching in response to the global health crisis. We were planning to preach this sermon series during this time uh, because it's the season of Lent. Uh, this is the, in the few weeks leading up to Easter, uh, is kind of the season where the church has historically set aside time to fast and to mourn and to grieve and to lament. We just recognize that it's a, it's a good, healthy practice to revisit every so often. So that was kind of our vision, uh, when we planned this sermon series was to, uh, have during, just to have a, a, a sermon series that was a little bit maybe darker, a little bit, uh, of a minor key uh, during the uh, season of Lent. And then as it turns out with the events going on uh, in the world, you know, this is more or less exactly what we need to hear and what we need to, to meditate on. So we're going to work through the, um, the entirety of the chapter of chapter three from Lamentations. Go ahead and turn there and we'll read it. And then we'll just uh, spend a few minutes considering what it says and what it means and how we can apply it to our lives. Starting in verse 1, we read, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me dwell in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me about so that I cannot escape. He has made my chains heavy. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with blocks of stones. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps and tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. He drove into my kidneys the arrows of his quiver. I have become a laughingstock of all peoples, the object of their taunts all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood." He has made my teeth grind on gravel and made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. And so I say, my endurance has perished. So has my hope from the Lord. Remember my affliction and my wanderings, the wormwood and the gall. My soul continually remembers it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind And therefore I have hope that the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, and therefore I will hope in him. 
The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the soul who seeks him. It is good that one should wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man that he bear the yoke of in his youth. Let him sit alone in silence. When it is laid on him, let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes and let him be filled with insults. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he cause grief, he will have compassion according to the abundance of his steadfast love. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. To crush underfoot all the prisoners to, of the earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that both good and bad come? Why should a living man complain, a man about the punishment of his sins? Let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. Let us lift up our hands to God in heaven. We have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. You have wrapped yourself with anger and pursued us, killing without pity. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. You have made us scum and garbage among the peoples. All your enemies open their mouths against us. Panic and pitfall have come upon us. Devastation and destruction. My eyes flow with rivers of tears because of the destruction of the daughter of my people. My eyes flow without ceasing, without respite, until the Lord from heaven looks down and sees. My eyes cause me grief at the fate of all the daughters of my city. I've been hunted like a bird by those who were my enemies without cause. They flung me alive into the pit and cast stones on me. Water closed over my head and I said, I am lost. I called on your name, O Lord, from the depths of the pit. You heard my plea. Do not close your ear to my cry for help. You came near when I called on you. You said, do not fear. You have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You have seen the wrong done to me, O Lord. Judge my case. You have seen all their vengeance, all their plots against me. You have heard their taunts, O Lord, all their plots against me. The lips and thoughts of my assailants are against me all the day long. Behold, their sitting and their rising. I am the object of their taunts. You will repay them, O Lord, according to the works of their hands. You will give them dullness of heart. Your curse will be on them, and you will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we pray your blessing on these next few minutes. Lord, even though we're not gathered physically, uh, even though we are spread out uh, in our homes, in our living rooms, we still recognize, Lord, that we are one body spiritually. Having been saved by one Savior, having been indwelt by one Holy Spirit. And so, Lord Jesus, we pray your blessing on this time. 
as we hear from your word. We, we are scattered geographically, but we are united spiritually, and we pray that together, uh, united, that we can grow in Christ-likeness. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, we'll begin with chapter 3, verse 1. It reads, I am the man who has seen affliction under the rod of his wrath. He has driven me and brought me into darkness without any light. Surely against me he turns his hand again and again the whole day long. The author begins this chapter with the same you know, familiar uh, refrain that we've been hearing all throughout chapters 1 and 2, that he acknowledges that, uh, that God is the one who is behind this. God has brought me into darkness. God has turned his hand against me. Remember what this guy has uh, seen. Remember what he has experienced up until this point. Jerusalem, the beautiful capital city of the nation of Israel, right, filled with uh, an ornate palace for a king to dwell in, massive, incredible temple where the presence of God himself dwells. People come from far and wide traveling to the city of Jerusalem to gather at the temple to worship God. And this incredible, beautiful city has been invaded. It's been destroyed. Brutal, violent armies have broken down their walls and stormed in and taken everyone captive. They've, they've hauled them off into slavery, into captivity with fish hooks in their noses. They've burned buildings down to the ground. They've, they've walked into the holiest place in the whole world, into the inner room of the temple, and they've taken everything and disrespected it and profaned it. This man has seen family members killed and carted off. He's seen friends be kidnapped and, and trafficked into a foreign country where they'll be abused and where they're going to be worked to death to make some other king rich. That's what this guy has seen and that's what he is lamenting. That's what he is mourning about. That's what he's sad about. And in the midst of, in the midst of all of this, uh, all of these experiences and all of these emotions, the temptation might be to say, Right? God, there's no way that you wanted this. God, there, there's, there's no way that you could be sovereign. Right? That, that was Babylon. That was Nebuchadnezzar. Right? That was someone else. There's no way that you had anything to do with this. But look at what the author of Lamentations says. Look at who he recognizes as ultimately behind this. Right? He, God, has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me. He has made me dwell in darkness. He has walled me in. He has made my chains heavy. He shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways. He's talking about God. He has made my paths crooked. He is a bear lying in wait. He has turned my, my steps aside. He's tore me to pieces. He's made me desolate. He's bent his bow and targeted me. He has driven his arrows into my kidneys. He has filled me with bitterness. He has ground my teeth down on gravel. The author is very clear that God is the one who has brought all of this about. Not my enemies, not the soldiers and mercenaries, not Babylon, you know, not, not the welfare state, not the, not the one percenters, not the coronavirus, not the, not the animal that transmitted the coronavirus to patient zero in humanity, right? This, he's saying the suffering that I am experiencing in my life is ultimately not from any of those uh, objects, any of those external, the, the suffering that I'm experiencing in my life is from God. 
God is the one who brought this affliction onto me. God is the one who allowed this to happen. And the, the implication is, right, the, the conclusion that we draw then is that God is still on his throne. God is still in control. The fact that I'm suffering does not negate the reality that Jesus is the king. Jesus is on his throne. Jesus is accomplishing his will. And this is instructive for us, right? We, we tend to operate under the assumption that if I'm suffering, then God clearly cannot be behind it. God clearly cannot be sovereign over it because if God were suffering, if, if God were sovereign, then I would not be suffering. This is what you, this is what you hear in, in virtually every freshman philosophy class on any given community college campus that you were to walk onto. You'll see some, some professor basically saying, the God that you learned about in Sunday school cannot be real. Think about it, right? The God, because if that God, that God, as you understand him, freshman students, 18-year-old, wide-eyed students, right? That if that God is omniscient, he's all-knowing, and if he is omnipotent, he, he is all-powerful, he can do anything, and if he is perfectly benevolent, he's all-good and all-loving, if that God is all of those things... Then, then he can't, by definition, exist. Because, because if that God, who is defined in that way, uh, by definition, he could rid the world of evil and suffering, because he can do whatever he wants. And if he's good, then certainly he would want to rid the world of evil and suffering. And yet, freshman college students, like, look all around you. Evil exists. Suffering exists. So the God that you learned about in Sunday school, he is, uh, he's either good, but not all-powerful, because he can't stop evil and suffering from happening, or he's all-powerful, but he's not good, because he is unwilling to stop evil and suffering from happening. So, so the God that you learned about as a child, the God that your parents, your Sunday school teachers, that, that God can't exist. I've literally sat through more than one lectures just like that and heard professors make those exact claims uh, and, and, you know, uh, uh, like take great joy in undermining uh, and eroding the faith of these freshman students that are in their class. But did you catch the assumption that 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 professor was making. Did you catch the assumption, right? He's saying, obviously, God can't be good if he's going to allow suffering and evil. Obviously, if God is good, then that means that he is going to rid, he would have never allowed suffering and evil in the first place, or he would rid the world of it right now. What he's saying is, if God is good, then that means that he is going to let me live the exact life that I want to live. Free from any kind of stress, free from any kind of suffering. If God doesn't do that, then God can't be good. If God is able to give me the exact life that I want, but he chooses not to, then that God must not be good. Right? If, if God doesn't allow me to live my life on my own terms where I don't have to answer to anyone except myself, if God could let me live like that and chooses not to, then that God must be a monster. If I ever experience one ounce of suffering, then that must mean that someone somewhere screwed up. It means that, that someone could have and even should have done a better job. There's, 
There's no way that suffering in my life could serve a greater purpose. There's no way that pain in my life could be redemptive in any way. If my life isn't tailor-made to my exact preferences all the time, then that means that God cannot exist. Or if he does exist, that means that God cannot be good. Does that sound a little prideful to you, right? I'm, I, I'm going to judge God by what I think he should be. There's no way that God might possibly know better than I do in the same way that a parent knows better than their child and, and, and sometimes uh, allows that child to experience things that are unpleasant for his growth and for his, his good, right? No way that God could know more than I do. If I were in charge of the world, I'd make a world where I never have to suffer and daggone it, God had better abide by that rule too. If I'm suffering, God must not exist or he must not be good. Or if he does exist and if he is good, then he must not be sovereign. He can't you know, he can't be the one signing the checks. He can't be the one authorizing this to happen. Friends, that kind of thinking, this kind of thinking that says God would never allow suffering to happen, that kind of thinking is utterly foreign to the book of Lamentations, right? The author is painfully clear. I am suffering. This is a disaster. This is the worst thing that I could ever, that I have ever experienced, that I could ever even uh, envision in my, in my mind. And God is the one who made it happen. God willed it to happen. God is sovereign over it. Does that, does that kind of language make you uncomfortable? I'm suffering, I'm in pain, and God is the one who's in control. God is sovereign over my loved one who died. God is sovereign over this car accident that I was in. God is sovereign over my child being rushed to the children's hospital immediately after they were born. God, God is sovereign over me losing my job and, and us you know, being in financial distress. God is sovereign over my a child growing up and telling me that they don't believe in God anymore. God is sovereign over this global uh, pandemic that's claiming the lives of tens of thousands of people. Does that kind of language make you feel uncomfortable? Because it, it makes me feel a little bit uncomfortable. And so, one way that we can... Uh, try to cope with the discomfort of that reality, the tension of that reality, is to, uh, yeah, just do not convince ourselves that God could not possibly be sovereign over suffering. The problem, though, the problem if we deny God's sovereignty over suffering is that we're left with a God who is not sovereign. We're left with a God who is impotent. He's unable. He's incapable of accomplishing his will and doing what he wants. Frankly, we're left with a God who is not worth worshiping. Or another way that we cope with it is we just, we, we live in denial, right? We, we stuff it, stuff it down, right? Uh, maybe God uh, is sovereign over suffering, maybe not, but one way or the other, I'm just, I'm not going to talk to him about it. I'm not going to admit to God that I am suffering. I'm not going to admit to God that I am hurting because God will get mad at me. If, if God knew about how I'm really feeling, about all of my circumstances, then God would interpret that as a lapse of faith. He would, he would smite me. Friends, that kind of thinking is also utterly foreign 
to the book of Lamentations. The, the idea of, of suffering in silence, completely foreign to the book of Lamentations. The author of Lamentations is, is suffering and he's verbal about it. He goes to God about it. He voices his concerns. He expresses his frustration. God, here's who I am. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's how I feel about it. Please help me. Guys, let me submit to you. God can handle your brutally honest communication with him. If you're upset, if you're scared, if you're experiencing doubt, if you don't know why some particular circumstance is happening, if you wish that your life had turned out differently than it did, you can go to God and tell, you can sit down and communicate with God and pray to him and you can be brutally honest with God about what you're experiencing. God can handle it. The entire, the entire book of Lamentations is a testament to the reality that God can handle when we are honest with him, when we vent to him, when we verbally process with him. A, a, a significant percentage of the Psalms are what we call imprecatory Psalms. They're Psalms where the psalmist is expressing frustration or anger or fear, right? Where he's, where he's literally praying for the downfall of a particular enemy that is persecuting him. And if those psalmists can pin Psalms like that, and if the author of Lamentations can write a book like this, and they can make it into the Bible, the inspired, infallible, perfect word of God, and we should take a cue from them. We should realize that God wants to hear, God wants to hear from us. God wants to hear when, when things are going great. And he wants us to worship him and praise him and thank him. And God wants to hear from us when we are suffering. He wants us to tell him how we're feeling. He wants us to vent our frustrations to him and ask him for help. And those are... Those are some of the big kind of sweeping implications that we can draw from the first 20 verses of this chapter. Suffering is real, but God is sovereign over suffering, and God wants us to be brutally honest with him and to pray to him in the midst of our suffering. But, and this is the, this is the beauty of it, right? This is what we see in the verses that follow, right? The beauty and the, and the, the language that we see starting in verse 21 This is the only time that this kind of language shines through in the book of Lamentations, so enjoy it while you can. The beauty of the gospel is that when we are suffering and when we cry out to God in the midst of our suffering, and when we're honest with Him and when we're authentic with Him, when we do that, God meets us in our suffering, and we experience God's true and glorious character in the midst of our suffering. Verse 21, but this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. He says, he says God, I'm in pain. God, you're the one who has inflicted it. You've turned your hand against me. You have torn me to pieces. You have driven your arrow into my kidneys. You have utterly destroyed me. And yet, I am going to call this truth to mind. I'm going to actively remember this spiritual reality that the love of the Lord never ends. Even when my experiences tempt me to believe that God is not loving, I'm going to actively believe that he is. 
I'm going to trust that God loves me. I'm going to trust that God wants good for me. I'm going to trust that even when I'm tempted to believe otherwise. It's what the, it's what the Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones uh, referred to as talking to yourself rather than listening to yourself. He says, the main trouble in this whole matter of spiritual depression, in a sense, is this. That we allow ourselves to talk to us instead of talking to ourself. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Take those thoughts that come to you in the moment when you wake up in the morning. You have not originated them, but they start talking to you. They bring back the problem of yesterday. Somebody is talking. Who is talking? Yourself is talking to you. Now, this man's treatment in Scripture was this. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. Saying things like, why are you downcast, O my soul? His soul has been repressing him. His soul has been crushing him. And so he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment and I will speak to you. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in your hand. You have to address yourself. You have to preach to yourself. You have to question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself. You must upbraid yourself. You must even condemn yourself or exhort yourself and command yourself Hope in God instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way. And then you must go on to remind yourself of who God is and what God is and what God has done and what God has pledged himself to do. And then, having done that, end on this great note, Christian. Defy yourself. And defy other people and defy the devil and defy the whole world and say with this man, I shall yet praise God for the help of his countenance, who is also the health of my countenance and my God. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, be honest with what you're experiencing, vent your frustrations to God, but then instead of listening to yourself and instead of wallowing in self-pity, talk to yourself. And exhort yourself to trust in God. And look in verse 22. Some of the, the attributes of God that this uh, author of Lamentation starts working through. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. God is loving. He loves us. He cares for us. He's concerned for us. He's, he's not indifferent toward us. And then, not only is God loving, but he acts on that love. His mercies never come to an end. He's, he's merciful. God has a heart for people who are suffering and people who are hurting and people who need mercy, people who are in pain. When God sees a person like that, he's moved. He draws near to them. And, verse 23, he doesn't just do it once, he does it continually. Because, uh, because he's faithful. There are, the, the, God's mercies are new every morning, and great is your faithfulness. So God is loving, God is merciful, but he is those things into perpetuity. You can count on his love. You can count on his mercy because he is faithful in his love and faithful in his mercy. God doesn't change and waver with respect to his attributes. They are and they always will be. 
And then verse 24, because of God's faithfulness in his respective attributes, God is sufficient. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in him. God is my portion, not anyone else, not anything else. If I have God, I have all I need. If I have nothing else in the world, but I have God, I have all that I, all that I need. Having, having a, a family is great. Having a job is great. Having a home is great. Food to eat, health, money in the bank, those things are all great. But the one thing that I need, the one thing that I cannot do without, even if I lose everything else, the one thing that I absolutely need is God himself. God is my portion. Verse 25, God is good. Verse 26, we should wait for God and trust him to save us. Verses 28 and following, even when circumstances are difficult, even when we've been left all alone, even when we're experiencing persecution, verse 31, God is faithful. He can be trusted. He will eventually redeem us and restore us. He will not cast us off forever. Verse 32, even though God causes grief for a limited time, he will have compassion on us. He will extend mercy to us. And why? Because because that's that's who God is. That's the, the nature of the heart of God. Look at, look at verse 33. For he does not afflict from his heart or grieve the children of men. He's saying God's heart instinctively moves toward grace. It instinctively moves toward patience. God is inclined as a default behavior to be kind to his people. Right? When God does afflict his people or when he does grieve his people, you can know that it wasn't his first. God is not in heaven with an itchy trigger finger ready to crush his people. He loves and his preference is to be kind to his people even when they deserve wrath. His patience lasts for an incredibly long time. Verse 34, to crush underfoot all the prisoners of earth, to deny a man justice in the presence of the Most High, to subvert a man in his lawsuit, the Lord does not approve. So God is also just. He is a God of of justice. He, He loves when justice is upheld. He hates when injustice is done to people, when his people are not treated fairly and rightly as his image bearers, right? God hates oppression. He hates persecution. He hates when people are taken advantage of. He hates when, when uh, the gap between the rich and the poor just grows bigger and bigger because people care more about themselves and having everything that they want than they care about their neighbor and making sure that that person has everything that they, that they need. So God is loving and merciful and faithful and sufficient and good and he saves us and he's compassionate and he's just Then in verse 37, he is sovereign. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord commanded it, right? He says, he says, God is the one who is, you're not sovereign. I'm not sovereign. God is sovereign. You have your preferences and you might work hard to actualize them and bring them into existence, but they're just that they're preferences that you try for and you have a limited capacity to accomplish them. Only God can speak his will into existence. Only God can command what he wants and see that it gets done. We are all creatures. We're all finite. But God is the creator. God is infinite. God can accomplish his will. God can speak his will into existence. And as such, verse 38, God is therefore responsible for all things. Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Everything. 
good, bad. Everything is traced back to God because everything is under the authority of God. That's the paradigm that the author of Lamentations is, is setting up, right? There's God, the sovereign creator, with all of these attributes that we see sketched out in verses 22 to 37. He has all authority, and we are under his sovereign rule. And then in verse 39 and following, uh, we see how we, as God's creatures, are to relate to God, our creator. Starting in verse 39. Why should a man, should a living man complain about the punishment of his sins? Right? He's saying this is, this is the default mode of humanity, right? We, we, our default mode is that we uh, forget about the sovereignty of God and we try to presume sovereignty for ourselves. God's not the king. I'm the king. God's not in charge. I'm in charge. God doesn't get to say what happens. I say what happens. And so with all of that being said, why, God, am I being punished? Why am I suffering? Why is this happening? If it were up to me, I wouldn't want this thing to happen in my life. I wouldn't want to suffer. I wouldn't want to be inconvenienced. I wouldn't want my life to be disrupted. But God has decided to do exactly that, and I'm going to grumble about it. I've sinned, God has punished, and now I'm going to complain because deep down, I don't think that it was God's decision to make. I want to be God. I want to be sovereign. And that's the default mode of of our heart, right? Complaining and presumption. But... But there's a, difference. there's a difference between this kind of prideful, presumptuous complaining that we see in verse 39 and the, the honest, vulnerable lamenting that we've seen in the first half of this chapter. And that difference is humility. And the difference is repentance. Right, verse 40, we see, let us test and examine our ways. Let us return to the Lord. Let us lift our hearts and hands to God in heaven because we have transgressed and rebelled and you have not forgiven. God, we have sinned. You have punished us. But instead of complaining about it, we're going to repent. We're going to examine ourselves. We're going to look inward. We're going to return to God and confess our sin to him. We're going to humbly ask God for forgiveness. Verse 43, God, you have destroyed us. You have completely decimated us. We can't get to you. Our prayers can't break through to you. We are totally at your mercy. Verse 45, you have, have given us over to our enemies. They're attacking us. They're trampling on us. They're causing us to live in fear and in terror. Verse 48, and as a result, God, I am grieving. I'm mourning. I'm crying. My eyes are flowing without ceasing. There's a river of tears, and I grieve deeply at the fate of the city that I love. The the author is saying, I've sinned against God. You've punished me. I am deeply sad about it. I'm I'm not annoyed by it. I'm not claiming that I've been treated unfairly. I'm not, I'm not going to demand that I be treated better. I'm sad about it. And I'm mourning, and I'm lamenting, and, and I'm crying. Right? I'm, I'm acknowledging my reality, responding to it with real, honest emotion, but then punctuating that emotion with a deep, abiding trust in the sovereignty of God. 
right? Verse 52, my, my enemies have mistreated me. They've sought to silence me and kill me. 55, in my darkest hour, in, in the deepest pit of despair and loneliness and helplessness, I cried out to God and I asked him for mercy. I prayed to God and God answered and he came near to me. Verse 58, you have taken up my cause, O Lord. You have redeemed my life. You, you've seen the despair and the hopelessness of my circumstances. You've seen me being destroyed by my enemies. And I trust, Lord, that you will respond on my behalf. Verse 64, you will repay them, O Lord, according to the works of their hands. You will pursue them in anger and destroy them from under your heavens, O Lord. He's saying, I don't need to justify myself. I don't need to vindicate myself. I don't, I don't need to make sure that every single person pays for every single thing wrong that they ever do to me. I can entrust those things to God in heaven. I can trust that God will make all things right. I can trust that God will punish people for their sin. So I don't have to. When, when people sin against me, I can trust that one of two things will happen. Either they will be punished for that sin in hell for all of eternity, or Jesus was punished for them in their place on the cross. But either way, the wrath and the punishment has already been meted out. It's already been exhausted. There's no room for any additional punishment left from me. I can trust God because I know that God is just, and I know that God is sovereign. Right? Brutal honesty. Here's who I am. Here's what I'm experiencing. Here's what I'm feeling. And ruthless trust. God, I hope in you. You are merciful. You are loving. I am going to come to you and trust in you and, and entrust myself to you. Incidentally, who else does that sound like to you? Who, who else in the Bible has exhibited this same kind of, of brutal honesty on the one hand, emoting, communicating what I'm feeling, deep vulnerability, I'm scared, I don't know if I'm able to go through with this, and also just deep abiding trust and resolve. God, you are the king. I will trust in you. Who does that remind you of? On the night before Jesus was arrested and tried and murdered unjustly, the night before all of that happens, Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And this is what he says. He says, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will but your will be done. Jesus is in the garden. He says, God, I'm, I'm scared. I don't want to do this. I don't want to go through with this. I know that was the plan. I know that we've been working toward this moment for all of human history. I know that I have to go to the cross. I know that I have to take the sin upon the world on my shoulders. I know that I have to be punished in place of sinners. I know that I have to absorb your wrath against sin so that your people can be saved and reconciled to you forever. I know that's the plan, but I'm, I'm afraid. 
afraid. And I'm hoping that there might be some other way. I don't want to drink from the cup of God's wrath. So God, if you are willing, please, I'm asking you with all sincerity, please remove this cup from me. And yet, even in the midst of my fear, even in the midst of my honesty and vulnerability and saying that I don't want to do it, in the midst of all that, Father, I trust you. Ruthlessly, I trust you. Your will be done. Not my will, but your will be done. The same brutal honesty and ruthless trust that we see in chapter 3 of Lamentations is what we see exhibited by the person and work of Jesus. Jesus was a man who was afflicted under the rod of God's wrath. Verse 1. Verse 2. Jesus was driven into darkness without any light. Verse 3. God's own hand of punishment was turned against his son, Jesus. Right? Jesus cried out for help. My God, why have you forsaken me? And verse 8. God shut out his prayer. Verse 13, the the arrows of God's wrath were plunged deep into the body and soul of Jesus as he hung there on the cross, atoning for the sins of the world. Jesus was mocked and laughed at, verse 14. Jesus was given bitter, sour wine to drink in verses 15 and 19. Jesus gave his cheek to the one who strikes and was filled with insults, verse 30, for the sake of his people. And yet, all the while, Jesus trusted in his Father. Verse 24. Through Jesus' life and suffering and death and resurrection, God has drawn near to us. God has redeemed our lives. God has judged our case. In verses 57 to 59. God has declared us not guilty by virtue of Christ's imputed righteousness, which was given to us freely as a gift accepted by faith. If you, if you read Lamentations 3 with the eyes of faith, you can see the person and work of Christ with great clarity in it from start to finish. Lamentations 3 is calling us to see God in his sovereignty and his mercy for who he is, and then to respond to him, to, to, to come to him just as we are. To see the brokenness that's in the world all around us and to lament, to, to confess our sin to God, to mourn over it, to shed tears over it, to cry out to God for mercy in the hope that God will rescue us from our sin and from our enemies. Lamentations 3 is calling us to trust God, to to resolve and to believe in spite of our circumstances that God is sovereign and God is good. God is loving and faithful and just. And then it's calling us to walk in response to those truths by repenting of our sin, by running to the Lord Jesus, and by holding fast to him in his death and in his resurrection to save us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we recognize that this world is not the world that we were created for. That this situation where we're scattered all over and unable to meet together is not... we, We miss the fellowship of believers, Lord. We miss 
hearing the voices of your people reverberating off the walls as we sing together. We miss uh, breaking bread together. We miss laughing together. We miss crying together. We, we miss our corporate worship gathering. And we come to you, Lord, and we lament. We lament not being able to gather. We lament the suffering and the death that's taking place in our world. And we're, we're sad together. And yet, Lord, in the midst of our sadness, we trust you. We trust that you are good. We trust that you are faithful. We trust that you love us. We trust in your death on the cross. And we ask, Lord, humbly but boldly, we ask for you to be merciful to us. And yet, uh, even more than that, Lord, even, the, even more than our humble uh, and, and honest uh, prayer for you to be merciful to us, we pray that your will would be done. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.